Hi, I'm Katie Marquette, and you're listening to Born of Wonder. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. It's a mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. We have lived our lives by the assumption that what was good for us would be good for the world. We have been wrong. We must change our lives so that it will be possible to live by the contrary assumption, that what is good for the world will be good for us. And that requires that we make the effort to know the world and learn what is good for it. Wendell Berry Hello and welcome to Born of Wonder. I'm Katie Marquette and on this podcast we explore anything and everything that inspires wonder and awe in the world. Today on the podcast I am going to be sharing an interview I did with Gracie Olmstead. Uh, if you haven't heard of her, I am thrilled to introduce you to her. If you do know about her, you know uh, what a great writer and thinker she is. So Uh, We talk all about the ideas of rootedness and home and connectivity and community. We also touch on just sort of some of the realities about um, some of the trials facing small towns and agricultural communities. But uh, it's really a conversation that I think is relevant to everyone because as I've mused about uh, on the blog and on the podcast on, on uh, previous episodes, this idea of home, a longing for home uh, and continuity and tradition is, is something really, really deep in all of our hearts, I think. And uh, we speak to that and we speak to how to sort of live sustainably and creatively and uh, with, with sort of an awareness of uh, our communities that we don't become too divorced from them. I think uh, that we we sort of coast along uh, wherever we are physically. We, we live our lives um, largely abstractly, whether that's in the online world or in our own thoughts or in our very small nuclear families. Um, we sort of keep ourselves at a distance from our physical locations. And I think that the best connections you make uh, in the in the online world, or um, the connections and traditions that you have in your family, um, they they bring so much. Um, they take on so much more weight and purpose when you share them with your physical community. Um, I'll just give you one very small example, uh, which was that I decided to um, start a buy nothing group, a Facebook group here in in my town um, when I noticed there wasn't one. I think I had actually listened to a podcast about sustainability and somebody mentioned a buy nothing group. Um, if you don't know what that is, the group, it's just you give your stuff away. <laughs> you just post, say, hey, I've got this pile of books. I've got this old dresser. I've got this if anybody wants it, if any of my neighbors want it it's yours, come pick it up, you know, or we'll meet somewhere and I will give it to you. And you can also ask for things. Does anybody have a kid's bike, anything like that? So the idea is to avoid things going in landfills. Um, You know, these are things that maybe you wouldn't want to sell or you would only be selling for like a couple dollars anyway. So you just give them away. 
but it's extremely localized. You have to live within a certain zip code to be a part of the group. Um, so it's really meant to be neighbors helping and sharing with neighbors. So anyway, long story short, or it's a short story and it's long, <laughs> short story long. <laughs> I started the I started the Facebook group and um, it's been a couple of years now and it now has uh, over 3,500 members and is very, very active. <laughs> I think I've only used it a handful of times, but um, it's, I like to think that, you know, it's brought a few people together and uh, at the very least has, you know, saved <laughs> saved some junk piles from occurring in people's backyards. So that's an extremely small thing um, that I did that, you know, it was just a matter of taking an idea and just manifesting it in some way. And again, that is using the online world to create something in your immediate physical reality. So I think uh, as you as you listen to this conversation, maybe think of ways that you can do something like that, um, a way that you can feel rooted and connected to your physical location, um, because we are physical, right? And and I think that 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 you know staving off that restlessness and feeling a part of something requires us to. Um, sort of invest a little bit in the places where we actually are, <laughs> not just um, these abstractions uh, and not always wishing we were some, somewhere else. So anyway, um, that's some of what we talked about uh, with Gracie today. So I think you're going to really enjoy that conversation. I just wanted to say happy Advent. I can't believe it's already Advent. <laughs> um, definitely taking on um, a whole new meaning for me here this year, um, being quite pregnant. I was pregnant um, during Advent with Jojo as well, but not quite as far along. So I'm just definitely um, feeling the anticipation and the a little bit of uh, <laughs> fear is not the right word, but the... Um, nervousness and the uh just just the 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 tenseness of waiting i'm really feeling that this advent so so i hope you all have had a joyful start to advent the first candle has been lit that is the hope candle if you'd like to you can go to the blog and find uh my lord of the rings advent guide i go through all all the movies and i have discussion questions you can uh you know maybe do them with some friends or some journaling uh we just started the first movie tonight it will probably take us like a week to finish it because we <laughs> you know uh the, we're going through like a sleep regression right now so we're all very tired so we can make it through you know like 45 minutes of a movie max um, but we will get through it hopefully this week and then next week we'll do the, um, the two towers and then return of the king and so on. So anyway, I will put a link to that in the show notes. Um, I'm also going to share a recommendation with you, which is some music, uh, by Sting. This was a listener who emailed me, um, a couple months ago now and said, did you know that Sting did like a Christmas winter album? I did not know that. And that he's apparently quite a literary guy and quite interested in sort of um, historic, you know, musical traditions and um, traditional folk songs and ballads and all these sort of things. So anyway, it's actually a really interesting album. So I'm going to share with you one of those songs at the end of the conversation with Gracie. It's a song called The Snow, It Melts the Soonest. So there you go. You can enjoy that at the end of the episode. And a uh, shout out and thank you to Penelope who emailed me to recommend Sting's album, If on a Winter's Night. 
I did ask Gracie after we uh, got off uh, the recording. I, I realized I had forgotten to ask her what she would recommend. And guess what? She recommends Kristen Laverne's Daughter uh, by Sigurd Unset, the incredible three-part novel uh, that I... Uh, have ranted about many times on this podcast and heavily (laughs) implied you need to be reading it. (laughs) So, and remember, you can also go back and listen to the uh, full lengthy uh, podcast episode I did with my friend Beth Jameson, uh, where we did sort of a deep dive into Kristen Laverne's daughter. So yes, uh, totally agree with Gracie. She's reading it for the first time right now. I'm kind of envious of her having that first experience of it. Uh, It takes on layers and different meanings as you reread it but that first time is very powerful so there are your recommendations for today uh as always find me online bornofwonder.com i am you know um on and off instagram at born of wonder you can find me there uh and of course you can become a patron if you follow the link in the show notes two dollars a month i would love to send you a handwritten thank you letter uh, if you send me your address when you become a patron but enough of me rambling let's get going let's hear from gracie uh here today on born of wonder So today I'm thrilled to be joined by Gracie Olmsted, who I think I was introduced to by Haley Stewart, who posted about how amazing your uh, newsletter Granola is, and she was right. So I subscribed right away, and it's so great, and led me uh, to read more of her writing and everything, and I'm just so happy that she has the time to talk to us. So thank you, Gracie, for being here. No, thank you so much for having me. It's a delight. So Gracie, um, for those who aren't familiar with you, would you just like to give a little introduction to yourself and your work? Certainly. So I am uh, originally from Idaho. I lived and worked in the Washington, D.C. area for over a decade as a writer, uh, an editor for a couple different publications. And then I was uh, very privileged to get to go to Oxford this past year to get an MST Um, in English and American Studies. And around that same time that we were leaving for Oxford, my book came out. It's called Uprooted, Recovering the Legacy of the Places We've Left Behind. And it kind of combines memoir and uh, political commentary with uh, in-depth agricultural reporting to tell the story of a small town in Idaho that's experienced both a brain drain of its youth and a lot of huge changes to its ecological and its economic health due to changes in the world of agriculture. Uh, So that's my big project that I finished in 2021. Now I am teaching part-time some wonderful kids. I am homeschooling my own kids and I am trying to write whenever I have time in there. That's that's a lot going on. Um, So when did you come back from Oxford? So we moved back to the States in August of this year. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's a big that's a big change, both going there and coming back. So that will relate to what I wanted to talk a lot about today, which is the idea of home and these changing conceptions of it. Uh, I did also want to say that I've read uh, your book, Uprooted, which I loved. I think it came out in March 21, right? And my daughter was born in March 
in March 21. And it was like one of my, uh, you know, like nursing pumping reads. It was like, (laughs) I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I also grew up in a rural area um, and have seen changes. It's a little different than I think the Midwest being being here on the East Coast. Um, But I'm very, very intrigued and interested to talk with you about how how how, what's happened to our agricultural communities but first of all let's let's start a little broader first um you write about a lot of things as you said uh politics to sustainable farming techniques i've also really enjoyed some of the writing you've done about sort of the consistent whole life ethic and that whole movement um Mm -hmm. But this idea of home uh, is something that has preoccupied me a lot, uh, just generally. And then sort of this summer when I was like in first trimester nausea phase, I just wanted to move somewhere cold because this heat was driving me crazy. So I was on Zillow all the time. It was crazy because I love where I live and moving is completely unrealistic. But there's a restlessness, I think, to modern culture in general. But um, how has your conception of home changed throughout your life or has it changed? I think it has changed uh, as I think it necessarily does as we live in different places and move into adulthood and uh, kind of move from being passive members of a home as children and teens and even as college students, young 20-somethings into active stewards of homes Uh, I think that can definitely force us to reckon with what we mean when we say we have a home or we are seeking to make a home for ourselves or for others. And um, one passage in particular that I've reflected on a lot lately from the book of Genesis in the Bible uh, is the first part of Genesis 1 where it says the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters in this initial Mm -hmm. act of creating Um, that we believe gave rise to the earth as we know it. Um, And as a Christian, I've I've always been curious about that first chapter. And I was reading this uh, passage and studying it and came to understand that merahefet, which is the word translated as hover, uh, also refers to brooding of a mother hen over her eggs, over her chicks. Mm -hmm. And it gives this beautiful understanding of the creation of God as something that basically encloses and protects tenderness and fragility in order to birth life. And um, Mm. I began to then see how the creation mandate itself, which calls for cultivation, is calling for the same act of nesting, of creation through very intentional, um, very tender and gentle care. And so I firmly believe that each and every person was created with the desire planted within them to be a nester of a place uh, in some way, shape or form to make that place better for their presence. I think that's what we as humans are called to do and something we can feel very deeply. But having lived in many beautiful places and many uh, struggling places, I think that is something that calls for prudence as to how we nest or how we care for the place in which we live particularly. And I also have really appreciated the thoughts of scholars like Norman Wiersbe, uh, who suggest that to be an agrarian or to be a cultivator does not call for you to live in the country or to be a farmer, but that the work 
of caring well for the land, for your community, for your um, family is something that can be done in a variety of contexts, including beautiful, beautiful cities. Um, so I think home for me is the place that we seek to cultivate and care for the fragile, the tender, the beautiful, the vulnerable, and to make things whole and healthy by our presence. And I love that we can do that in all manner of places and contexts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, that's, that's, a, that's a beautiful reflection on Genesis. I didn't know that that uh, had that sort of secondary meaning of brooding, um, nesting. I really like that. Um, I think partially, I guess what's complicated is that, uh, like you said, living in different places and that may or may not fulfill certain things for us is that we often think, well, if I could just change my locale, my physical location, um, then, you know, that would solve X, Y, Z other problems. Um, we sort of use, uh, there's all, and especially because we live in a modern world where m moving is maybe more possible than it wasn't uh, a long time ago, uh, we can, we can say, well, we can just leave, you know, if things don't work out. So how do we, how do we sort of manage that? And is that a new, is that a new feeling? Is that like, uh, a unique feeling of being a 21st century person, um, or is this sort of existential restlessness uh, related to place um, something we've always uh, dealt with as human beings, do you think? I tend to think that at least at the level that we're experiencing it now, there does seem to be something uh, very modern about it. And, and I think that could in fact just be the result of the fact that we can travel more and farther more easily, more cheaply than at any other time in human history. Um, I th yeah. Restlessness is probably to some extent baked into most of our um, lives and, and the sense that we want to discover the new and the interesting and the different, especially when we're young, before we kind of decide to put down roots somewhere. But I, I've reflected a lot on uh, the words of Wallace Stegner, who was a Pulitzer Prize winning novelist and essayist who also ended up um, winning a Pulitzer Prize. Did I say that twice? You did, but let's emphasize it. He's <laughs> <laughs> definitely Pulitzer Prize winning. <laughs> uh, Pulitzer Prize. Um, yeah. He wrote a lot about, about place. And um, he reflected at one point in one of his essays, I think it's in the book, Where the Bluebird Sings to the Lemonade Springs. Uh, he says that places in the United States, but especially the West, tended to be populated by what he calls boomers and stickers. And this is something I, I touch on in my book. Uh, boomers, of course, he's not referring to baby boomers. He's referring to people who he says, quote, pillage and plunge and then, uh, sorry, pillage and purge a place of its health and then leave that place behind. Um, and so there's a very extractive mentality to their restlessness that results in ill health in every place that they visit. And of course, he was thinking about um, the mining boom, the gold boom in the West, particularly when he wrote this. But if you think about it in terms of agriculture, in terms of commerce, um, and a lot of other areas of economic development in the U.S., there are these patterns of boom and bust 
that we mm-hmm. see and we see the environmental and the communal uh, deleterious impacts that these things can have. Uh, and so then he says the stickers are those who move into a place and invest and stay and seek to make that place better for their presence. And he suggests that there is also a pattern of this in the United States, but that of course it's always been second to oftentimes the patterns of boom and bust that are more popular and um, tend to have a bigger impact at least when we think about a lot of the places that we know and love. And so his goal, I think, in writing was to both make this more prominent in our minds and to encourage us to be, I think, stickers as a result. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I do wonder maybe if the 21st century mentality, um, knowing that maybe our children will not be in the same place that we are, that maybe we won't be in the same place in five, 10 years, that that sort of sticking mentality is just not the norm anymore. Whereas before, if you were sort of had a generational farm um, or just even a town or something that's like worth investing in, uh, in ways that people just don't do anymore. Yes, and I think too. Let's give Gracie lots of credit for this amazing two-year-old who has been, my 20-month-year-old would not be as quiet as he's been. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He's great. (laughs) He's doing awesome. (laughs) I, I think that's such an important point. And I think one thing we've seen and that I, I have a lot of mixed feelings about is just that in the United States, particularly, and I, I think probably true in many other parts of the world, in order to kind of succeed and grow, you oftentimes have to leave place behind. And um, we tend to award mobility in a way that disincentivizes young people from being stickers. I think Christopher Lash in his book Revolt of the Elites talks about how the um, the wealthy and the successful of our world tend to jet from coast to coast and to live an extremely uprooted lifestyle. And uh, the pressure and the incentives are all there to kind of live in that way. And so there's, there's obviously a huge impact that that has on the uh, communities that perhaps raised us. And um, of course, when I was writing my book, this was at the forefront of my own mind because I was writing about a small rural town in Idaho, but I was living right outside Washington, D.C. So what does it mean for me to reflect on leaving the place where I grew up? What does it mean for me to be a sticker in a new place? That was something that I was reflecting on uh, a lot as I was working on my book. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Uprooted. So you, as you said, you you went sort of back to where you grew up because you, like many of us, left uh, the place you grew up and to, to pursue professional education opportunities. What made you want to take a look back? Why did you say, I need to take a closer look at, uh, at this rural community of Emmett, Idaho, and uh, there's something here that's worth writing about? So my, my own work is very inspired by Wendell Berry. Uh, who's an incredible farmer, essayist, philosopher, poet. And um, I read his book, Remembering in College. It's a novella, probably about 150 pages. And in that book, he reflects on 
uh, his own life by telling the story, the fictional story of a young man named Andy Catlett, who leaves home for college, becomes a writer, and then eventually moves back to the town where he came from, which is, of course, Barry's own story. Um, but this this young man oftentimes still experiences these moments of existential crisis. Am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? And so in remembering, he's thinking about and considering all these questions and why he is living the life that he has chosen. And uh, Barry writes that his thought he has is, though he does not hold, he is held. And when I read those words, it struck me so forcibly that though I had not held tightly to the place I was from, I was, I was held by the generations that came before me, by the community where I grew up. And I was already experiencing quite a bit of homesickness for that place. But Barry's work definitely impressed on me this idea that we are indebted in lots of ways to the people who've made us who we are, to the places that have been responsible for our growth. Um, so I think this, this book really prompted me to think about what I might owe to the past and to place, which put me on the journey that eventually led to the book. More uh, practically, when I started studying agriculture as a young journalist and I got a fellowship to kind of look in depth at the decline of small to mid-scale family farming in the U.S., I began to realize this topic was so huge and farming itself, agriculture is so diverse mm. and complicated. And I believe the best way to kind of show people some of the trends and trajectories and patterns that I was researching was through the story of one place and one town and the people who lived there. And I hoped that would both add specificity and kind of the ability to build everything into a narrative that I think makes people care uh, to a degree that just a long, um, just list of data points would not do. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that that is what can be difficult when people start just sort their eyes just glaze over, you know, when you see a certain amount of statistics about, you know, uh, certain realities in, in farming or in sustainability or anything like that. Um, but when you start talking about a specific farm or a specific family or something like that and how things have changed uh, for the worse and what that has meant uh, to them personally, it becomes uh, important to people. And I think you, you did do that in your book. I mean, you do have to to love what you do. I mean, to be farming these days, um, and especially on a smaller scale. Um, how, how is what is going on in Emmett representative of some bigger trends just across the country, both in agriculture, but also just in small towns? I mean, if we just think, um, I even think of my, my town, you know, if most people leave, then what does that mean? I mean, who there is, is, are people going to come in to fill those 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 gaps where where a new generation would have been, or are those going to just become ghost towns? Like what what is the future going to look like? Um, and how did you see that in Emmett and elsewhere? Well, I think so. We could start with the agriculture piece. I think one thing I really appreciate about the work of people like Wendell Berry and Norman Wearsba is they point out it's all a web, it's all connected. Um, and so we start talking about agriculture and I think it leads into culture economy and uh, just socio-political issues quite 
naturally because they all intertwine. In the world of agriculture, we've seen um, specialization, hyper-specialization in some places of what is grown. Um, and alongside that, a lot of decline in uh, the amount of people working the land. Basically, with the increased specialization of one or two crops and uh, the amazing innovations in the realm of uh, equipment used, equipment and technology used to farm, uh, for instance, the tractors that we have today, uh, it's become increasingly possible for one person to farm thousands of acres in a way that never would have been possible even 40 to 50 years ago, probably. Uh, but of course, with that, with that specialization, and then with kind of resultant issues of consolidation and monopolization, uh, you begin to have this impact on rural communities where places that used to have industry clusters where you had processing, distribution, packing, uh, you had farmers working side by side, you had a lot of different industries working together and a lot of employees and a lot of hands bringing in crops. Um, now, most of that has disappeared. So that begins to impact the economy of farm towns and how they operate and uh, the work that they do versus the work they used to do. Uh, and so in addition to that, that begins to have an impact on things like uh, the local schools. So a lot of local schools have entirely hollowed out uh, grocery stores and things like that also go out of business. A lot of farm towns are now technically food deserts, which if you want to talk about ironic, that's definitely up there on that list. Yeah. Um, and so with that, you also have whatever young people live in that community saying, I don't want to stay here. There's nothing here to stay for. And so when they graduate, they tend to leave and never come back, which just furthers that pattern of emptying out and hollowing out that we've observed. Now, I don't want it to sound like um, the years of lots of people working on the farm were all glorious and beautiful because obviously they weren't and aren't. We have huge problems with um, the horrific treatment of farm and food workers to this day. And we obviously have issues uh, with the environmental impact of chemicals and other things used on the soil throughout the 20th century. The main thing I want to just point out here is that obviously these rural towns used to have a sense of telos, of purpose, and of shared labor. Um, and that, that has definitely faded. And with that, there's just these continued patterns of aging and of leaving that tend to characterize those towns mm -hmm. now. I also wonder with the introduction of this technology that allows such a distance from what you're actually doing, if just sort of the knowledge and then the care for the land is just lost a little bit because if you have one person just driving a tractor over acres and acres, that's very different than a, a whole farming community that is working together literally like with their hands, um, just something tangible. Uh, there's probably a lot of knowledge, but also a lot of emotion that has been lost. And we kind of have to love these things if we're going to care enough to put the work into protecting them and sustaining them. It's such a good point. James Rebanks talks in his book, English Pastoral, about how the work that his grandfather did was um, intimate enough that he could stop and rescue a bird or a hedgehog 
from the field before he plowed on through um, with his tractor or with his other farm equipment, he had the ability because of the scale of things to pay that sort of attentive, detailed care to the world around him. Now, of course, most farmers who work with very large pieces of equipment would never be able to see, let alone stop and rescue a small animal like that. And so he he considers that as just one of a series of things in the realm of agriculture that have had a horrible impact on a lot of um, the ecological systems that farmers work in. And he's been, I would say, at the forefront of um, movement amongst UK farmers to really change that and to work to repair riparian systems and ecological health um, in places that have really seen those things tank over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I really love James Rebanks. Also, I, I haven't read that book. That's his se- second book, isn't it? Um, but I did read A Shepherd's yeah. Life, which I enjoyed a lot. Uh, he's He farms in, in the very famous lake country. Um, and uh, I think there is that tension, too, between um, many people who sort of, you know, perfectly fine to love the countryside in an aesthetic way. But then uh, the the reality of of farming and lives lived on the land. I always think of that too with the Scottish Highland and the Highland clearances. Is that sort of when you go and you're like, wow, this wild open landscape. Really, it should be populated with people. <laughs> um, but it's that that sort of we we've, we've divorced this idea that there's a way for human beings to live on the land and with the land in a healthy sustainable way we either just say no human beings here at all we're going to make this a park or some sort of something like that or we're going to just uh you know do what we have to do to just get as much as we can out of this landscape um so so this idea i think is related to rootedness which is sort of what we started talking about just sort of putting down roots somewhere and i think there's probably a healthy amount of you know, exploration of the world that is good to do, you know, not not trying to say you shouldn't go travel or live in different places or anything like that. But there is something important about people putting down roots, this phrase we hear. Uh, What does that mean to you? I mean, have you put down roots in your life, do you feel like? And how do we embrace rootedness when um, we're asked to constantly be changing? Mm -hmm. Well, I love, um, and I'm forgetting who said it. It'll probably come to me momentarily. Mm. But I love this quote that uh, suggests that roots are only a tiny part of the plant. They're they're Mm. one of the important, maybe in a sense, um, the most important part of the plant. But of course, a plant springs upward toward the sun and produces leaves. Uh, It was Henry David Thoreau who said it in Walden. I knew it would come to me. (laughs) He suggested. (laughs) Of course, we need roots, but we need roots so that we can produce flowers and fruit. Um, and so a lot of a lot of the ideas within rootedness suggest that you should be an environment in which you are growing and thriving so that you can bless the place in which you are. Um, and obviously, if you're in a place that makes it very difficult, if not impossible, to be happy and healthy, then you can be a transplant, which um, I talk about in the book because my great-grandmother moved from North Dakota to Idaho and 
blessed so many Idahoans as a result. Her life was not poor for moving. It was, it was very much the richer and enriched others. Um, but I think this question of what it means to be rooted is such a good one. I think um, Simone Weil in her book, The Need for Roots, suggests that we are all placed. We all have a place we live in. Obviously, we each have a particular context, uh, but we should have multiple roots that keep us strong and healthy. Um, those roots should be social. Um, they involve where we work and how we work there. They involved our associational life, the church perhaps that we attend or the organizations we're involved in. And they involve politics, um, how we relate to the place in which we live and its civic life. And uh, these are just a few of the different strands, history also, and family history is another, um, that make us who we are and that can be healthy or struggling depending on both the place in which we live and the way in which we live there. Um, I talk in my book about the idea of living like a perennial. And for me, what that means is that every place in which we might be called to live, we can live with the intentionality and with the joy um, and with the stewardship that results in health. So the thing about annuals is every year they get pulled out of the soil and there's actually a, a soil depletion that happens in that soil over time as it's constantly um, losing nutrients in, uh, and as things are changing in the soil. Um, perennials, especially a lot of perennials like buckwheat, for instance, different types of legumes, um, a lot of a lot of plants that are rich in nitrogen, they are uh, able to enrich the soil over time. But of course, perennials are the best because they keep sending their roots down deeper um, with each ongoing year. And in that process, uh, they feed and fuel the soil in a way that annuals cannot do. And so I consider in my book what it means to be a perennial, to live in a place with that sort of intentionality that results in enrichment and growth. And I think um, while it's true that many of us will move over the course of our lifetimes, if we move always and constantly and never with the sort of intentionality that would allow us to grow or to bless the places in which we live, um, we're going to be very much like those annuals that don't really enrich the soil in which they're planted. And I think it's good to think about what it might involve in our own lives to be more like a perennial. Hmm. Yeah, I, lo I love that as a metaphor. Um, because I think sort of the modern mindset is very much like we are on our own, we make decisions for ourselves, and we're sort of just these silos that we can just kind of shift around as pleases us. But I think maybe there's something to be said uh, that you owe something to wherever you're living, that you are part of a web of communities um, and that you um, are sort of obligated to partake in them uh, if we're going to if we're going to have a positive impact on on the places where we live. And also, I think it's better for us, too. I mean, I don't think we're meant to live as sort of so isolated uh, without a sense of where we are or who we are. Um, so we've already talked a little bit about Wendell Berry. Um, 
Another author I really like is E.F. Schumacher, who wrote a great book called Small is Beautiful, which I reread a lot. Um, and they both, in different ways, but advocate for local infrastructure growth, sustainability. Um, but sometimes um, when I read them, I feel like this is great, but how would this work in reality? Sometimes I'm just so overwhelmed by the reality of the way production works now, the way we get our food, the way we just live on a day-to-day basis. Um, Is there any hope that we can reverse any of these trends in agriculture and commerce um, from the last, you know, from the 20th century? Is there, are you optimistic or, uh, yeah, just how do you feel about the future of these things going forward? Well, it's interesting that the pandemic did already, I think, uh, the COVID pandemic did change and uh, bring to light a lot of things that need to change in the realm of agricultural production and food production. Um, So most people would be familiar with the fact that at least at some point, probably in 2020, you wandered into the grocery store and noticed some things missing. Um, uh, Everything from meat to milk. And uh, what was happening was all of these um, ways in which we process and distribute food became severely bottlenecked. And uh, we made here in the United States an incredibly efficient system of food production distribution. And that's great when everything is working well. Um, But of course, when there's bottlenecks, when things break down, uh, there's a huge cost and toll. Everything from the way in which food workers working in meat processing and packaging facilities uh, were incredibly horrifically impacted by COVID um, and the people who own these companies did not care for their employees uh, to the fact that many hogs had to be slaughtered and disposed of because the way in which they were supposed to be brought to market broke down and it was literally not worth the farmer's money to take care of them. So there was just a mass killing off of hogs um, to the fact that milk just got dumped potatoes got dumped on the side of the road because the way in which they would normally get to market uh, disappeared. And the ironic thing, of course, is that at the same time that these things were happening, there were grocery stores empty of milk and empty of bacon and empty of these other products, uh, which just leads us to reflect on the fact that an efficient system can be good in many ways, a nationalized or globalized system can be good in so many ways, but it also has its weaknesses. And so in response to those weaknesses, we saw increased uh, memberships in CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture. Uh, We saw many more uh, farmers who were producing meat on a localized scale, getting more customers. Local butchers saw an uptick in business. Uh, And a lot of farmers who were producing grain and other things began to look for ways to uh, form co-ops and create either their own mills, their own slaughterhouses, um, and other forms of that processing, distributing piece that has not been local and regional and that has really hurt farmers across the board, especially in times like this. And so my hope is that that option is going to continue to be there and that it will be more popular. Um, The other thing that would be great is to see the growth of organic agriculture result in just a little bit less costly of a price change when people are looking at buying organic because Mm -hmm. 
I think that is a piece that would help a lot of people by in a way that's um, better for the land and better for their bodies. But of course, I think it's very costly to switch from growing conventionally to organically. And so um, that can result in a lot of trouble. But that's a piece that doesn't necessarily have to be local. Um, it's one that would do a lot of good across the board um, at any piece in the puzzle. I think there's some things that probably will always work better on a national scale. Um, for instance, if you're producing grain, um, it's great if you're producing it in part for your local community, but my guess is that you'll also be producing it for other places across the country. Um, but I think there's a lot of things we could grow well at the local level. Um, for instance, our produce that would really benefit those communities in a huge way and that would have all sorts of value-added products that you could build onto um, that would then result in a lot of overall local economic health. And um, one of the ways in which we could make that more feasible is by making things like co-ops and collaborative farming enterprises more popular because what that does is it means you're not working by yourself um, and footing the bill for everything by yourself, but you actually have partners who have come alongside you and who are doing the work with you. Yeah, definitely. And I think also gives you the advantage of learning together how to grow these things. Um, I know as a amateur, terrible vegetable farmer, like I don't know anything what I'm doing. I've had been on this farm app for five years now and I've never had a successful <laughs> season where things have gone the way I wanted, but I didn't know, you know, I mean, I think a lot of these things we have to, we, we're, we're learning as we go. And I do think there's a real craving to learn things like that, to grow things and to meet other people and work with your hands and things like that. So I do think on that small level, um, there is, you know, there's a lot of interest. So, you know, if it starts that way, then maybe it can get bigger and become more normalized. So I'll take a little bit of optimism about that. But so going a bit broad again, just as we wrap up some of these ideas. Um, so maybe some people are listening, maybe they don't live in a rural area, you mentioned how you can live, uh, live, you know, well and sustainably and in a rooted way in cities, really anywhere. Um, and you just came from living in a city. Uh, so maybe you can give some advice about just how to embrace these ideals, no matter where you are or um, what state you are in life. Well, I can only say I do it all imperfectly <laughs> and it's a <laughs> constant growing process. Um, but I, I pull a lot of inspiration from the example of my great-grandparents who I talk about in my book and I think the way in which they lived can of course be adapted to a lot of different environments but uh, they were both invo involved in local boards, ministries, um, they were very much determined to invest in young people in their community. My grandfather actually helped train army veterans after World War II um, and to teach them how to farm so that they would have a livelihood they could come back to. Uh, he was also a Sunday school teacher. He was involved in the local hospital and did a lot of other work. Uh, my grand, my great-grandmother was constantly baking and cooking meals for people in need, for families who perhaps had just had a baby or had just experienced a death. She volunteered at the local nursing home. She sang for weddings and funerals uh, without being paid. And um, 
I think as I reflected on their lives, what I saw is that they considered themselves to be members um, and members called not just to consumption, but to stewardship and to care. And so they took their relationship to and their responsibility for their community very seriously. And so I think it can be anything from bringing a meal to a family in need to considering ways to help out in a local soup kitchen or um, even just planting some herbs in a pot and putting them on your back porch. There's all these small tangible ways we can begin to think of ourselves less as consumers and more as stewards. And I think each and every one of those ways slowly begins to change our relationship to our place and helps us to put down roots. Um, I had a post on my, my um, granola newsletter, I think at one point, kind of thinking through this along the lines of the encouragement my mother always gave me, which I found so annoying, of course, as a young person, but um, <laughs> she would always say, um, leave it better than you found it. So I'm sure mm -hmm. I'm not the only child who was told this growing up, but we were supposed to leave places, rooms of the house, or uh, if we were to go over to a friend's house, if we were uh, babysitting kids for a family, we were supposed to leave the home better than we found it. And so I wondered what would it look like if we just brought that little piece of encouragement to the way we walk through our neighborhood, for instance, whether we pick up trash if we see it in the gutter, um, or the way in which we consider our our civic duty and, and our voting habits and patterns, whether we vote at all. Um, just some of those different ways we could perhaps implement that advice came to mind. Yeah, I, lo I love that. And that sort of just um, wraps up nicely what I did want to just sort of end on, which is I think all these discussions show that a lot of modern life is not satisfying us in some deep some deep ways and i do think you know there's so much great things about um the online world um you know i've met so many people i'm talking to you because i read you know your newsletter and we're able to chat this way but i think that when we get to i think that that can be like an illusion of community and it's also not a rooted community you know so you might have a very active, um, you know, engaged online community that you're very involved in, but it, it's so separate from like our physical self and where we physically are that I think, um, you know, whether that's, you know, doing a local, you know, group, maybe that you, you first start out online, but then you go meet up in person or something. I think just sort of manifesting that community in a real physical sense in where you actually are in the world is so important. Um, and I think that sounds mm -hmm. like what your, you know, what your grandparents did and what I think was a much more natural thing people did because maybe we didn't have many other options. So it was like, if you want to meet people or do something, you got to go to your local, you know, library and join the book club there or something like that. But um, that being said, um, I want to recommend that people follow along with you online, uh, no matter where they are. Uh, I know right now you're doing, you are doing sort of a book club right now, right? Uh, with uh, Walden. Yes, yeah, so if you join the Substack, uh, it's granola.substack.com, and there's a paid subscription option. Every November, we do a book club. We've done Marilyn Robinson's Jack. We've done uh, Wendell Berry's Hannah Coulter. And this November, we're reading through Henry David Thoreau's Walden, which I read at least four times last year. And so I just happened to um, have thought a lot about it. And so we're reading it, and then we'll have a fun Zoom webinar with some scholars and talk about the book. 
And uh, we, I tried to do things like that fairly often where we'll read through a fiction or a nonfiction book. We'll have some opportunities to discuss it. We do book Q&As with a lot of different authors. And um, there's sometimes some fun giveaways that I throw in as well. Great. So yeah, so yeah, so follow, I will put a link in the show notes for the Substack. Um, is there any other uh, place where people do, do you have a website or uh, I know you are on Twitter? Um, is, is that the best place for people to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I have a Twitter. I'm on it less and less these days. Um, but I do pop on as often as I can. It's at Gracie, G-R-A-C-Y Olmstead. O-L-M-S-T-E-A-D. And then I also have an Instagram at Gracie Writes. And so feel free to reach out either of those places. I'd love to follow you. Great. Well, thank you so much, Gracie, for joining us. And I hope, um, I, I know this conversation will be thought-provoking for people as they figure out the best place to find find home in a sometimes existentially confusing world. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you so much. Well, the snow, it melts, the soonest when the winds begin to sing. And the corn, it ripens fast as well, the frost is settling in. And when a woman tells me my fish will soon forget, before we'll part, I'll wedge a croon She's faint to fall at yet While the snow it melts the soonest one The winds begin to sing And the swallow skims without a thought As long as it is spring But when spring goes and winter blows my lassie, you'll be fain for all your pride to follow me across the stormy main. Oh, the snow it melts the soonest when the winds begin to sing, and the bee that flew when summer shone. In winter cannot sting I've seen a woman's anger melt Betwixt the night and war Art surely not a harder thing To tame a woman's scorn
Oh, never say me farewell here, no farewell I'll receive. And you shall set me to the stile and kiss and take your leave. I'll stay here till the curlew calls and the martlet takes his wing. Oh, the snow it melts. The soonest world the winds begin to sing. And here there is something more than just a transient experience. It's about uh, being. It's about the things that matter to me. It's about the white spaces between the paragraphs. Then God said, let there be light. The mistake you always made, Doc, trying to love a wild thing. 